welcome to What Were You Thinking? My name is Laura Round and in this podcast I speak to politicians and opinion formers to find out about the experiences, people and places that have inspired them. Having taken a little bit of a break of this podcast, I felt inspired to record two special episodes after having been heavily involved in Penny Morden's leadership campaign. And one of those guests is Penny herself. After unexpectedly becoming the bookie's favourite and Conhome readership's favourite, and well, many other polls for that matter, she came third with close to a third of the MPs vote. Regular listeners will know I ask every single guest which person and people have inspired their thinking. And if I were to be asked that question, Penny Mordant would definitely top that list. I had the great privilege and pleasure of being her special advisor when she was Defence Secretary and International Development Secretary. And so yes, full disclosure, I am likely to be biased in this conversation as I find Penny incredibly inspirational. I got to see her in action firsthand, representing us abroad with real skill, building strong relationships on behalf of the government. She's intelligent and across the detail. She always displays empathy and is always calm, no matter how big the crisis she found herself in. For people who don't know her, she has held many government positions. The first and only female Secretary of State for Defence... She was Secretary of State for International Development, Paymaster General, Minister of State for International Trade, Minister for Women and Equalities, the first female Minister for the Armed Forces, and Minister in the Department for Work and Pension and the Department for Communities and Local Government. We talk about her upbringing, the international challenges we are facing, the leadership contest and the cost of living crisis. This episode is kindly supported by WaterAid, a charity that is leading the way in bringing life-saving clean water, decent sanitation and good hygiene to everyone everywhere. Across the globe, 1 in 10 people don't have access to water in or close to their homes. 1 in 5 does not have access to a decent toilet. And without these basics, people can't thrive. They can't build any resilience, girls can't go to school, and livelihoods are lost, trapping families in a cycle of poverty and disease. They are an important line of defence to fight drug-resistant viruses and bacteria, making the world safer and making the UK a safer place for it. But that defence is under pressure, as our climate is increasingly impacting people's access to clean water and sanitation. The heat waves and floods in Pakistan are the latest example of just that. If this disaster has shown us anything, it's that climate change is making the struggle even harder for people living on the front line of the climate crisis. That's why WaterAid urges the next Prime Minister to address the climate and global health crises that we are facing. It is vital that the new PM puts in place a cross-departmental strategy on global water security, acknowledging that water security is as vital as energy or food in the UK and abroad. Water Aid's our climate fight campaign calls on the PM to invest at least a third of the UK's climate budget in local adaptation projects. This includes bringing water, sanitation and hygiene to people who need them. As the UK has a long history of supporting people across the globe, it is not a big ask. Well, Penny, thank you so much for coming on to What Were You Thinking? My very great pleasure. You are um, one of probably the most obvious guests for me to have on, yet uh, somehow you never did until now. So I'm, I'm, really, <laughs> I'm really pleased you, we've got the chance to, to, to speak still uh, on one of these sort of special, um, special episodes. You know, one of the key questions I ask every guest um, is sort of about the people in their lives that have influenced them and and their thinking and their, and their politics. So Penny, in your case, which person would you say has influenced you the most? Well, I think in, in politics, to be successful and to enjoy it, you have to really like people, you have to be interested in them. So I think this is an impossible question to answer, because, you know, just pick one person, because uh, I'm... I'm influenced by a lot of people and it's sometimes things they've done or things, ideas they have. Um, and sometimes it's an attitude that they have or an admiration. Um, I find a lot of people very inspirational. Um, 
but I guess early on it would have been my my mum and dad um you know my mum uh is who's no longer with us is um well she was a special needs teacher she was really motivated to get the best out of everyone that she worked with and just a very very kind patient person who was very motivated to look after others so she did a lot of voluntary work she and she did a lot of work um looking after kids who who really had a lot of behavioral issues and uh, quite often I'd go along with her to to help on those um those meetings and sessions and um yeah she was just a really really inspirational brave woman and uh and my dad similarly has uh again a very modest person but had a a life of service he he was signed up by his dad for the army without him knowing but served uh, uh, and went into the paras he then became a teacher as as my mum uh, was a teacher and then um uh he went on to be a youth worker and he just felt very strongly about certain things and about giving these kids every possible opportunity and uh, on the day of his retirement, I remember he'd had a big argument with his boss because he wanted to set up this basketball class for this group of kids and they, they, his boss was having none of it. So the day he retired, he went down to the sports shop and he bought about 30 basketballs <laughs> and uh, he set up his own uh, basketball court um, at, at this place that he uh, used to work at and uh you know he's that he's that kind of guy, and still is doing Duke of Edinburgh's award scheme. You know he's in his eighties. We finally persuaded him that sleeping in the back of an estate car at his age in the middle of the New Forest is not a good idea. But he's he's that kind of chap. And then I'm very fortunate to have a stepmom as well, who is all was also a teacher. She's retired now, um, and they're just people who have have served and give back, and particularly focused on young people and knowing that if you can influence and change their lives, the better, that the, their life chances are so vastly improved. Mm. That is, um, that's a brilliant anecdote about your, your father. That is, uh, that is determination right there. That's pretty. I know he was having, he was having none of it. He couldn't do it while he was in work, but it, he was, it wasn't going to stop him. So yeah, he's that he's that kind of a chap. Brilliant. So you, um, you mentioned it in passing, um, you lost your mother and uh, at quite a young age. How did that life experience early on sort of shape you, do you think? Well, I'm I'm very struck that actually a lot of people in Parliament have lost a parent. Um, mm. It's something that I think Isabel Harbin co- uh, commented on in her, in her book about um, MPs. And I think if you do lose someone, whether it's a parent or a sibling at a young age, you you inevitably think about how you live your life. Uh, you know, it was a big moment for me when I became older than my mother was <laughs> when she died, you know. Uh, and uh, But you do think about the time you have and whether you're going to use it well or not. And I suspect that's why a lot of people who, who go on to do things like politics or who maybe take risks or make sacrifices in their lives to do particular things, whether it's in politics or other things, uh, have had that experience. Um, I think it makes you uh, a stronger person. Inevitably, it makes you a stronger person. But it also just teaches you about what's important in life and uh, and making the right decisions to prioritise what's important in life. And for me, I had a lot of responsibility at a young age, and I think that was in part why I chose to join the Conservative Party and it shaped my views about personal responsibility and uh, and about taking care of your family and, and taking care of other people. That makes a lot of sense, and uh, that, is, that is very interesting. Um, as you say, you've had to take that responsibility and it makes you, uh, in particular, that it shaped your conservative thinking and, and, and credentials as, as it were. trying to engage with, um, I mean, I think services now for, for people who are suffering from, from cancer are better, that, you know, undoubtedly improved, but just the uh, how to connect with services, 
making sure that healthcare services are the best they can possibly be, you know, just things, simple things like transport to a chemotherapy or a radiotherapy appointment were just really hellish for, you mm. know, my mom. And I, I always remember those, those things about the experiences she had at the time. And I always sort of think about issues that my constituents have gone through and, you know, how you'd want something to be the, the best possible experience, whether it's in healthcare, whether it's in engaging with the welfare system, you know, we all know uh, there's there's a lot of uh, improvements that can be made to to all of these things to make the experience of that that person that's using the services really good. Mm. So moving on to place, what place or places have have impacted your your politics? Portsmouth. <laughs> <laughs> Portsmouth is it's a really. I mean, I'm sure all MPs bang on about their constituencies, but Portsmouth was my home it is my home and it is an incredible place we have this thing called the Pompey spirit which is basically total determination gritty determination we're not going to give up no matter how hard this is uh no matter what odds are against us we're all going to come together and we're going to smash it that's that's the what we mean by the Pompey spirit and it's obviously exemplified itself during moments like the Falklands War, but also things that uh, I've I've been involved in in my time in politics when we, you know, we did the largest and fastest ever community buyout of a football club, which was an incredible thing to do. I cannot tell you how many forces were lined up against stopping us doing that. And we did it. Uh, and, and we did it uh, by coming together and pooling what resource we had. We're not a we're not knee deep in millionaires in in Portsmouth, but uh, people club together across families to buy shares and to uh, to enable us to do this. That's there's just so many examples of that that I can see across my city. It is is an incredible place. I I final anecdote on this because I could I could talk about it for the rest of the podcast. But in 2011, when we had riots all across the country, nothing kicked off in Portsmouth. And that tells you everything you need to know about mm. me. Uh, if if the local, you know, Chinese takeaway was going to be had its window smashed and the cash register raided, uh, everyone would be out stopping that happening. I mean, they're they're great people, and uh, I'm very proud to represent them. Yeah, that is uh, that is that is really interesting that that it didn't happen there. Um, also, one of the things that you know dawned at me you know as you say it is your home but it also was your home you know you really are from there it's where your roots are and everything and I think all your constituents are lucky to have someone who's actually from their constituency because that's not the case uh with with all constituencies I don't think it's you know you want the you want the best people in parliament and uh you know, it's uh, it's luck and timing a lot of this. So mm. there, there will be people, and it's right that there are people, you know, um, that come from different places representing areas, and it's up to the local people to to choose them. Uh, there's no, yeah, uh, there's no uh, problem with that at all. I was determined though to be selected for Portsmouth, and uh, I had uh, a year prior to the selection. I I worked out roughly when the selection would be. And I was living in London at the time, and I went uh, to every council meeting for that year preceding the selection. <laughs> I wow. wore a very loud dress, and I sat in the public gallery opposite the Conservative councillors for a year. And no one knew who I was. You could see as the year go- rolled on, people were saying, who is that? She's not a reporter. Who is she? What's she doing up there? Um, and when I walked into the selection meeting, the penny dropped. They knew who I was. A penny dropped. Penny dropped. <laughs> uh, no pun intended. Um, and they knew that, you know, I had cared enough to go to every single meeting. I could quote them back at themselves. I had really good understanding of the local politics and the local issues, not because I'd just gend up on it in the last, you know, few weeks, mm. but because I I had invested that time. And I was uh, I was just determined that I was going to give myself every chance of getting that seat because it is a fabulous place and it is it's important to the nation as well. It's the most entrepreneurial city in the UK. 
mm. uh, does the largest number of of export sales um monthly export sales of anywhere else wow. and it's uh, and obviously the home of the surface fleet i mean it's it's an incredible place yeah um but also the first time you fought that seat it um you know it, it used to be labor um so you you really turned it around which is also quite an interesting an interesting fact and actually during you know the previous or well the current leadership election uh, I think you were the only candidate who actually had done that had the experience of that sort of really sort of you know hard-nosed campaigning and 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 having to face Labour. Yeah and knowing what it's like to do it with not a lot of support so the first time Mm. I stood in 2005 I was considered a no-hoper and so didn't get any help. And the next time I stood, I was considered absolutely a you know done deal, and therefore uh, didn't get any help either. So I know what it's like to uh, you know fight a seat for a long period of time. You know, I was fighting that seat before I got elected seven eight years, mm. and uh, that's why you know it is it is just so important that we. Uh, we do the right thing in parliament we're communicating really well uh and when we drop the ball you know i know what the cost of that is uh we i mean you know the 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 stuff we've got happening now on uh on the sewage issue is just infuriating because mm. you know when uh, when michael gove was at defra he fired the first shot across the water company's bows and then ever since uh, we've been we've been working to bring in these reforms, uh, which now mean that you know people can't um, you know pay their shareholders large amounts of uh, cash if they are uh, you know if they're not um, doing what they need to do on uh, ensuring that this pollution doesn't get into our into our waterways and into our our ocean. So it, it's absolutely infuriating when we're not capable of communicating that. Um, mm. But uh, yeah, it does give you a a, a good perspective, uh, a really important perspective. And I think it just helps you always remember that, um, you know, we have to, we have to work and we have to continually deliver for people and continually improve and modernize and we can never rest on our laurels. And I think mm. that if you're not, if you don't have that attitude, uh, you, um, you shouldn't be in politics. Portsmouth is, of course, the home of the Navy. What role do you think the city played in introducing you to the world of defence? So, I, I I, mean, I have all my childhood memories are full of, of the Navy. You know, as, a, as an eight-year-old, I could identify uh, various different types of helicopter that were permanently sort of, you know, flying overhead. It was, and we, in those days, we had Navy days, uh, which we, don't do that anymore uh, now but you know the dockyard doors were thrown open and you could go and climb all over the warships and learn more about them um uh britannia was in as well you could go and have a you know visit on on that and i think that it's so important that connection we're a maritime nation and uh i i think those sorts of things are are incredibly important but uh sadly but for various reasons not not possible to replicate in in this day and age so just very close connections and then again just uh the falklands war as nine at the time that was that was going on and that was just such a huge effort not just from the fleet but from everyone in the city so you know i've got some of my um council team uh in Portsmouth were were dockyard workers and the the what they did to actually stand up the task force is incredible um we've just recently been campaigning there's a fantastic chap who's who's trying to get some commemorative plaques installed in all the dockyards that that helped with that effort and uh I think we've got about uh um about 15 plaques installed now um overseas as well places like Gibraltar and obviously um in the Falkland uh, islands themselves just a huge effort and it's again the pompey spirit you know people came together they did something which lots of people said were was impossible and i just remember also cruise liners being you know having helicopter pads welded onto them so that they could take casualties so always had that very close connection. And I think as well, people do very brave things in the armed forces, but actually a lot of it is, is 
mundane sacrifice. It's the hours you put in. It's some of the physical hardships you endure, um, whether that's the kind of accommodation that you, you've been put into historically, um, just really grim and unpleasant experiences that you you go through on on training and um uh with with some other activities that you're asked to do a lot of the a lot of the activities we you know we we ask people the uk standby battalion for example to do at home on floods and things like that really unpleasant environments to work in very cold often you know they might not have the right kit in the first few days um and they just do it and i think that we should just ensure that we're absolutely through throughout the whole of their career and beyond looking after these people who who do these incredible things for the service of our country and ultimately are prepared to make the ultimate sacrifice. We can't thank them. We can't look after them enough. Yeah, one of the things that is just an interesting uh, fact, I suppose, is that currently at least, you know, no other MP in cabinet or senior ministerial rank has as much international experience uh, as you do. You know, for the fact that you were international development secretary, trade minister, defense secretary, and the other experiences that you have. Um, but the fact that you, you know, grew up in Portsmouth, do you think that really helped shape your sort of international world outlook and made you, you know, look, look more globally than, than you might otherwise have done? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I, I said it in my notorious loyal address speech what is uh what is said of portsmouth is often said of the country you know portsmouth is the only only island city in the uk and the uk is is an island nation we're a maritime nation and we've always had that global outlook um we we have uh you know incredible uh trading relationships, incredible defense relationships. We understand instinctively why something going on over the other side of the world has an impact on us and our own well-being. So I, I think, again, my views were formed on that having grown up in, in Portsmouth. And, you know, I see it every day with work that's going on in the city, not just with the Navy, but the commercial port, what our businesses are doing. Um, the ideas that are generated there, and and the fact that actually when I travel, uh, there's a Portsmouthian wherever I go. You know, I remember recently I've been doing these state level deals in in the US, and I just remember going into a. I'd arrived in um, Nashville, Tennessee, went uh, that night to a um, bluegrass bar to meet the local chamber of commerce and where was her husband from Portsmouth uh you know former taxi driver um and that happens on a daily basis when you're out traveling you know our, our um Portsmouthians are everywhere well that's that's you know you, you mentioned you've been to the state a lot and one of my other favorite things I found out about uh you know recent campaign is that you did the longest U.S. tour of any minister uh last Christmas since Churchill during yeah. World War II. Um, that's just, I know, I think that's really cool. So can you expand a bit, you know, what what, what was the reason behind that? Your, you know, what's the situation um, there and, and how's it looking? Well, I thought it was incredibly important that we deepen our relationships at state level. Obviously, we're working towards a, a free trade agreement at federal level. So that's the sort of arrangement that would remove tariffs, we we hope. Um, but you can do a lot at state level because a lot of the regulation sits at that level. And also the growth that is really happening in the US is in a handful of metro areas. It's with the big, powerful cities and also places that people tend not to think about. So because of the business regime in California, for example, on their approach to taxation, quite a lot of companies are looking at other states. Um, it's not just about the coasts. They're looking at you know, where they can get green, uh, green energy, where they can uh, have you know, a tax environment they want to operate in and a bit of you know, get up and go. And um, they're looking at other places other than the, the 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 usual suspects. So really important that we deepen our relationships at at state level. 
not just to build a head of steam for the free trade agreement, but also to remove other barriers to trade. So the kinds of things we were doing were mutual recognition of qualifications. Um, we would expect, for example, on things like legal services, accountancy, audit, architecture, or engineering, us to be able to take a bigger share of those contracts that are uh, up for tender in, in particular states. We're doing these procurement pilots to really open up procurement in, the, in America to uh, UK companies. We're doing particular areas in the in the UK to particular state relationships. Uh, we're looking, for example, the the four major cities in uh, in Texas being partnered with some of our powerful metro mayors in the UK. Lots of things that are just going to mean that we have more regular dialogue. We can look at things like airline routes and all the other stuff that's needed uh, to help with with growth and trade. And it's been it's been very successful. We're talking to uh, about these agreements with half of the of the U.S. states, and we've signed two already. There'll be another clutch signed this autumn, including in the first eight, uh, Texas, which is a massive economy. So this is good. It will really help growth, and it will be part of those supply side reforms that. People have been talking a lot about in this in this contest and that enabling regulation uh, agenda that we've been talking about during the course of Brexit. So uh, pleased to be able to do it. And yeah, it was great. Um, it was a nearly three weeks. I think um, we were going from state to state. Brilliant. I ate um, a lot of barbecue. Drank a lot of beer for the sake of the nation. <laughs> that is exciting. Yeah, that is really that's really interesting. And I suppose you know, looking at the wider global context at the moment it's you know it's precarious it's scary um you know having that strong relationship with the us is already obviously there's a, there's a good relationship but deepening that is can only be a good thing what's what's your read on the situation in in with russia and ukraine uh, but also you know looking at china and you know what's been happening with hong kong and and now um taiwan look we we have to never take our relationships with our allies and partners for for granted they constantly need to be worked at we need to find the the things that are going to make a difference to to what we care about and that's why even though we have this incredible relationship with our closest ally the US we can't we can't be lazy we have to we have to work at that and uh we also have to uh find the wins whilst we're waiting for further things like that FTA that we we want to see happen. So that's really important. And I think also all nations that have those shared values in democracy and effective and good capitalism need to support each other in being champions for those things and getting them to work, quite frankly. And that's why I think the work that Liam Fox has been doing with Conservative Friends for America and trying to really uh, support uh, people, whether they're Democrats or Republicans, who want sensible, grown-up uh, politics, and they want, um, you know, they they want effective, positive politics. And I th- I do think that is vital that all nations, de- de- democracies, uh, and uh, and and those that really share those those values with us uh, work hard at those relationships. We have huge challenges right now on the economy, on security, but we also have big opportunities. Trade is is one of them. Um, There's no point in us focusing on aircraft carriers sailing through particular parts of the world when they work. Spanafars is stuck off the Isle of Wight at the moment. unless you've got a vision for that part of the world, unless you you want to uh, really articulate and you're standing for something about free nations being able to trade freely with one another and and those democratic values and principles and that international rule rules-based order that uh, that supports that freedom and and helps protect it. So those are the things we need to do. We have a big opportunity in that with with our newfound freedoms from from leaving the EU. We are we are working towards that with things like um, CPTPP, for example, uh, and and being able to uh, remove uh, 
barriers to trade and really open up that market and in, and have higher wage jobs back here in the UK. All of those all of those things we need to uh, work at. But we we're obviously having to deal with a, a lot of things concurrently. This has always been what the UK has done, and it's done it very well. We we are a genuinely global uh, nation. These are, things have always concerned us, but we clearly have these very two two very difficult re- relationships to manage. One with one with Russia, one with China, and doing those concurrently is you know very very challenging. But again, having that strategic overview that we we know that despite how difficult things might be in the short term, what we have to do, what we have to ensure happens, because we know that without uh, that order, without those values being protected, our freedoms are threatened and we, we cannot allow that to happen. Obviously, as, as, as stated previously, um, I am a tad biased in this conversation because, you know, I've obviously worked for you and, uh, and helped again this summer. And you know, just just respect you so 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 much. But one of the things that I thought was just incredible, really, was probably one of my favorite stories during the campaign, was the fact that ten Ukrainian members of parliament came out to sort of almost like well, effectively endorse you uh, to be the next prime minister. And that was that was just um, I mean, I couldn't believe that was a story I was allowed to be selling in. I mean, that for me was a highlight, probably one of the many, many highlights during that week. As as we said, you've got that very strong um, understanding and uh, of of defence. Um, and you used, you know, you were, you've been Defence Secretary, you, you've served as a Minister for the Armed Forces, the first female Minister of the Armed Forces, you were first female Defence Secretary, so clearly your credentials are really strong. But what is it with Ukraine? I mean, just, you know, the back of that story, but, you know, astounding, I find astounding fact that 10, 10 MPs came out publicly to support you. Tell us a bit more about what you think we need to see in Ukraine. I think that, the challenge in this, and I think if you go up to anyone on the street um, or you just walk down the street and look at how many homes, businesses, buildings have uh, the Ukrainian flag flying from them in the UK, the, the British people are absolutely behind Ukraine and they understand very well because they recognize uh, what it means to them. Um, they understand the consequences of uh Russia achieving its objectives. Um, so support is strong, but us politicians must always remember the very real consequences of what is happening now to uh, our own population. And we are in very difficult uh, economic times. Those difficulties are exacerbated by this war continuing. And uh, Putin will know that. And so uh, he undoubtedly will be interested in in causing as much uh, grief for us and our citizens as as possible. Uh, So we have to have utter clarity about what the objectives are that we are trying to achieve and make sure that we're communicating why that is important to the British public and why it is going to, uh, even over a short period of time, mean that uh, their lives will be better if we continue supporting Ukraine. Because I think the pressure will come on us uh, to uh, to try and push uh, the Ukrainians to the negotiating table. I, d- I don't mean from our public. I don't mean from um, uh, you know necessarily um, uh, from from Putin himself. Uh, but you know, it may be the case that our European allies um, have a uh, you know think that uh, they shouldn't be as robust as they they have been so far on uh, on sanctions, on energy policy, and all of these things. They have they have some really very major challenges that we we need to uh, be aware of. So I think this is going to be difficult. And it is absolutely clearly in everyone's interest that we bring the war to an end fast. And uh, that's in Ukraine's interest. It's in our interest. It's in, um, you know, for the sake of the global economy, for the sake of food security in other parts of the world, 
for the sake of avoiding a very serious migration crisis in a few years' time. You know, we need to be focused on those things as well as the immediate uh, situation, the day-to-day uh, ground war that is is going on uh, in Ukraine. Um, on migration, I- migration, when working for you at uh, Department for International Development, I remember that was a key focus for you. And sort of as you allude to now, there's an obvious link uh, with, with migration. Tell us a bit more about... Um, so I already know the anecdote, but I would I would love to <laughs> you to, you to share it because I think it's quite cool, um, and I can sort of like prelude this with the fact that you are a far more far braver person than I am and ever will <laughs> will be. But um, can you just tell the listeners about your endeavours as Secretary of State? Uh, I'm not sure which anecdote you're referring to. <laughs> there are so many. There's so many. Bra- what is it? One involving a. Mapping, mapping the routes. Yeah, so so this was um, this is not the bravest thing you've done, to be fair. Actually, (laughs) so this is (laughs) going back a few years, but we we obviously had um, uh, a huge focus on um, migration going on, in part because of the uh, the war in in Syria, and. There, there were also some things going on, which is when we were in the EU, and there were some things going on that I thought were was absolutely shocking. So, the EU, um, which is is quite happy to obviously wave fingers at us when we were trying to sort out uh, the Rwanda policy and and, uh, and and do things that are going to make our uh, our systems fit for purpose. Uh, we we forget that uh, just a short while ago, the EU was turning a blind eye to Italy having an arrangement with Libya to, as migrants arrived on um, Italy's shores, uh, turning them around um, and using EU funds that was supposed to be looking after uh, those refugees, using EU funds to pay the very same people traffickers to take them back to Libya, uh, obviously a few dying along the way, um, to be uh, recycled through to other people smugglers or in the most egregious cases, put into slavery and slave camps in uh, and sold uh, in, uh, in northern Libya. I mean, that was the EU knew that was going on. It knew that its money was was being involved in that. Um, and I, I would challenge the commissioner at the time at the at the um when when I met him at the at the UN. Um so I was very interested in what was happening, where these routes were going, and also our collective security. And one of the reasons that I ended up voting to leave the EU is that the security measures that we had collectively paid for to ensure that terrorists and others who might be trying to get into uh Europe um all the provisions that have been stood up, the biometric testing and, and all of that was just, you know, the machines have been delivered, but were all covered up and, and were not being used. And, uh, you know, that is uh, numbers is one thing, but allowing people that want to uh, do us harm to to come through poor, those porous borders and then get into um, uh the EU of which we were a member at the time was was obviously uh, you know very uh, very concerning, um, and so I spent as you know a long time mapping these routes, really understanding what was effective. The NATO missions were always more effective uh, in uh, in deterring uh, illegal um, migration than the than the EU ones, and I have you know very clear views about how we could how we could break the uh the the business model that's currently seeing large numbers of people arrive on uh on our shores um focusing on you know boats and fuel uh if you if you mm. frustrate the access to boats and fuel you uh you frustrate that business model and so very very practical things but ultimately i think the only way that we're going to crack this and we need to in the next few years because there will be a, a greater migration crisis uh you know happening in a few years time i'm i'm certain of that um is is to really get our 
international partners through those international forums to recognize that the current rules that we're operating globally and those expectations that are on nations like us who are very generous in taking genuine refugees um you know are, are cannot work and cannot survive in this environment and that's why we're having to be creative with things like the rwanda policy uh, and we're going to have to go uh, further too so it needs modernizing and we've shown great leadership on other issues as a nation uh, on things like modern slavery through those international forum and, uh, and the UN and uh, and other bodies and we i think we need to do the same on on migration uh, illegal migration one of the other things that would be great for you to just expand on and explain sort of how this ended up you know happening what the challenges were to get this uh, in place is making sure that her data port in Yemen was opened to enable food and fuel to get into the country, which was a huge, huge thing at the time. Um, and I know you received a lot of international praise for achieving that. And that was that was a very big deal. What were the challenges? How did that, you know, how did you make it happen, Benny? So this was... Um... A situation where I I knew that if I just went and said you need to open the port, you need to ensure these food and fuel ships are, are getting in, we we would have just been sent packing. You know, they they would have wheeled out the the general responsible, and and he, he would have said no, 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 it's all fine. Um, so. I thought it was incredibly important. And this was it was absolutely vital. We had those ports open there. People were starving to death. So I went, I took a slight detour and went to as close to Yemen as I could get, which was uh, Djibouti. And I went to the port there and these ships would dock at that port and then they would try and cross to one of the Yemen ports. Um, so they, I knew they would have the shipping records for for where those ships had been put to sea and what had happened to them, and it was very clear from looking at those that direct evidence that food and fuel ships were being prevented from entering those Yemen ports, and so I was able to take that evidence and actually I took one of the um, the the shipping. Um, guys from that port to that meeting and uh with uh um, a senior uh individual who then did exactly as i thought uh, and called in the general who was responsible for security at, at um those those particular ports uh, and hudaida in particular and um when all the flannel happened um i i put the shipping records on the table and and got the the uh, cargo handler just to talk them through just what they were holding and how long they'd been holding these ships for. And we were able to get those ships to move and, uh, and get them into port. And we also managed to get the, it was a vital passenger ship as well, which was absolutely critical for, for getting aid workers in and out. We managed to get that, uh, re, that route reestablished as well. Um, and I think you just have to sometimes, it's very easy when you're in a government role to fall into a, you know, here's a meeting that you need to have, go to the meeting, um, as opposed to thinking, what's the outcome that we need from this meeting and how do we make sure we get it? Uh, and it's mm. not just, uh, you know, half an hour of chat. Uh, and then yeah. it was, it was really critical. So it was a slight detour. Um much to the annoyance of some of my officials. But I was about uh, to say, I remember you bringing as the Pompey spirit <laughs> <laughs> to the officials who, especially with the ongoing battle, whether you could travel to Yemen or not, and you you were determined, uh, I, I strongly recall, <laughs> much to their... It was important. And I think as well, it, it gives the people you're working with confidence that, you know, particularly in a situation like Yemen, which is so, so dreadful. Um, I mean, the the... If, if you have an ongoing situation like that where people have um, are suffering from you know malnutrition for very long periods of time that it's, it's 
it's devastating to a country and you have to you have to continue to give people hope that it's worth trying still worth pushing for things to happen even if they they seem very slim uh mm. and if you if you have an outcome you're trying to achieve you you work back from that and you're don't compromise on on the actions that are needed to deliver it mm. So um, just reflecting on that that period, um, both as Defence Secretary and International Development Secretary, you you met so many interesting uh, characters, you know, world leaders, um, you know, leaders of IMF, the World Bank, uh, Dr. Tedros from the World Health Organization. I remember you had a particularly good relationship with. Um, you've you've found yourself in many interesting scenarios <laughs> and uh, I'm sure many you can't publicly discuss but if you were to reflect on that time which ones sort of jumped to mind as some of them more I, I worthy think, I think it's again I'll bring you back to what I said at the start it's about an individual's ability to make a difference because actually there was some great people that I met in really fantastic positions but actually some of the people that most stick out in my mind are the people who had an idea about how they could make the world a better place and went for it. So um, people who are the real innovators who, you know, remember in um, actually in Pakistan, a, a guy working in a hospital who realized that he could save enormous numbers of kids lives um with a bit of plastic tubing and a and an old water bottle you know he just invented this thing um that uh was going to basically you know keep keep people's airways open um another guy who was a car mechanic who heard on the radio that enormous numbers i think it was about 17,000 uh souls were lost every day um because uh people were, uh, women were uh, not able to get access to hospital care and were dying in childbirth with the child dying as as well. And uh, they described the problem on the radio and he was had his head under the car bonnet and thought, you know, I've got something here that would, you know, and he he has developed this, um, this bit of kit, which is now saving um, tens of thousands of lives a day. Um, uh, Never underestimate the the power of someone having a good idea and and pursuing it. But there were many wonderful meetings. I remember uh, um, we unusually actually. I think I was the first Difford Secretary of State to go to the Vatican because we, we were very much trying to get everyone to help us um, stop uh, child brides, and uh, clearly their their networks um, and missions in particular parts of the world were going to be really helpful for us doing that and we did this uh wonderfully boozy lunch on the top of our um ambassador's residence to the to the holy see which has this incredible roof terrace overlooking rome um with all of the nuns who were running these missions and uh they were just incredibly brave women working in some pretty awful parts of the world and uh and so committed to helping uh helping people helping women in particular and saving lives and uh you know you can't help but be inspired by that and the fact that we were kind of building these networks and they were new and and I knew that they were going to be very very effective that was you know that was there's moments like that when you know you've kind of set something in train. And when I did the Women of the World conference, because um, I held the equalities brief at the same time, where we got an elected woman from every nation on earth uh, to come to um, the uh, the UK Parliament and, uh, and uh, on the centenary of women's suffrage, I insisted that they send a woman from the Vatican um, and she wasn't allowed in the commons chamber because she wasn't technically elected, but we had her in the, in the public gallery with some other ladies who, who also came from places which didn't have uh, uh, official elections. Yeah. And um, I made reference to, to this individual in my, in my speech on the day. I remember that was a spectacular day. That was, that was so great and such a powerful 
statement to the world for women's rights and the importance of having female representatives. I mean, that was that was the. Uh, yeah, gosh, that was, yeah, you've really brought back some really amazing <laughs> memories. There. That was great. I mean, as as different Secretary of State, I mean, um, when you first got in, there was a whole Oxfam scandal, you know, all these um, all these scandals that came to light about charities not not having strong enough um, uh, protections in place. But you really didn't hold back. I mean, the reason I, I bring that up is because you know, what you talk about being sort of a bit more, in a way, creative is the word I would use of finding solutions is what you brought to differ in from my memory. So, you know, it's not just about giving the money what everyone's asking for. It's finding sort of other solutions and to, to reach the objectives you, you had in mind. And how, how can we see more of that uh, creativity so I think firstly, it's being very focused on what it is you're trying to achieve and um, being confident that it's the it's the right thing to do. So just on the where we were really trying to ensure that these predators who were who were using the kind of aid worker system to carry out what they wanted to do, um, that that was closed off to them. So just very practical things about a, a, a register. Uh, for people who are working in that field. And again, things that Britain could do really well and help other nations with, it wasn't really about money, it was about practical advice, but digitizing criminal records, because a lot of countries where these guys were, mainly guys were, were operating, were, um, you know, their criminal records were just in on bits of paper in drawers um, scattered across it. So Getting those into a database, you could you could basically ensure that um, you were best placed to protect people, ensure these ensure these predators weren't moving around, and then really recognizing great leadership. Um, uh, I always remember um, when we put this call out, this international call to uh, ensure that people who were working for organisations were not allowed to use prostitutes, which sounds um, not a controversial thing to say, but if you were employing local staff and that was the norm in that country and it wasn't illegal in that country, um, lots of organizations were sort of, oh, you know, you can't do that. And I always remember Kristalina Georgieva, who was at the time uh, uh, the CEO of the World Bank. She said, if you work for us, you cannot use prostitutes. And her board said to her, you can't do that. Uh, you know, this is out, you know, this is outrageous. People will not stand for this. And she said to them, you said that when we banned people smoking in the office, they'll get over it. Yeah. And it was, uh, it, you know, just absolutely not having any qualms about doing the right thing and showing that moral leadership, which I think is really important. But I think there's a lot more we can do. And you you talk about the, the aid budget. I have always said that, you know, it's not just about the aid budget. It's about every budget in government. We should be having blended finance. The spending reviews we have in Whitehall are about departments arriving at their own budgets, as opposed to building partnerships that lever in more resource and mean that our ambition in government need not be limited by what is in treasury coffers. And we should be doing much, much more of that. And a lot of the things that I did at DFID were about that. So a small example is the Commonwealth Veterans Programme. So we could not have done that with just aid money because some of the veterans we were trying to reach were in nations which were non-ODA eligible. So non, not we weren't able to uh, spend money in those nations and have it count towards the aid budget. But we partnered with the Royal British Legion and we made sure that any veteran um, from uh, who'd been serving in our armed forces in a Commonwealth nation pre-independence, who would have been at that point living in abject poverty because they had no pension and care, um, we made sure that they would be taken care of. And again, tiny amounts of money, the whole program for the whole of its life, um, was about 17 million and and some of that was picked up by uh non non-public money um but I think it was really popular because people felt that if you had served in our armed forces and you in in some really quite difficult uh roles 
that, that you should be taken care of and looked after. And I think that, you know, that that kind of partnership is what we should be doing across government. We should be doing it with our welfare system. We should be doing it with our healthcare system much, much more. And then the final question I ask every guest is, is you know, what... Um object and this is this is a slightly odd question but it is it is quite good fun what object would you um say has impacted your thinking and, and potentially even your politics so i think i'm thinking again back to those inventions that i was talking about um i i always remember at uh, dwp uh, i i I worked with, I held the disability brief there and I worked with a whole raft of people um, who were uh, scientists, uh, computer scientists, um, inventors who you'd give a problem to and very quickly they would come up with a solution to it. And it was everything from, you know, stopping someone who had Parkinson's disease from, from shaking and, uh, and enabling that person to, to write and to, to draw or, uh, looking at new apps and systems. We used to have lots of sort of hackathons where we'd put a problem out there and, uh, and people would, would solve it. Uh, just really enabling people to, um, to understand, you know, how they could go about their, their lives, how they could go and, um, wouldn't have to battle with all the accessibility problems that they were having to uh to to face and deal with and it just struck me that you know sometimes in government the way we approach things is we think of the that we've got the problem and then we try and invent the solution and then we commission someone uh put out a tender for someone to come and build it for us and the world doesn't work like that anymore and and if we were more open about the problems and the things that we were trying to fix in our legacy systems and uh, and in some of the the challenges that we were we were facing as a society, and we enable people who have the answers to contribute more, and we support them to do that, we would just get a lot more things done faster. And so, it's all those inventions. And I'm always I'm fascinated by science, and I just have such enormous respect for people who are who are re- think deeply about these problems and try and find solutions and in government we need to be able to bring those people in more which is why the work you know people like George Freeman are doing on on uh, on science and enabling people to develop these solutions but also to grow businesses from them here in the UK is is so important and uh, so yeah slight cheat there from me um (laughs) lots of objects but objects that have been invented by brilliant people to solve problems for other people no that that's um that's interesting as as you know you gave some examples and sort of you know through the international stage that you came across but uh that applies to probably every single uh department um uh, government department um just Briefly, just touching on sort of the elephant in the room, which which is that you obviously ran to be to be the next prime minister. Uh, you well, you got twenty nine percent of the vote of MPs. I think it was one hundred and five, um, and so you got pretty damn close. <laughs> but um, which is a, a huge accomplishment, uh, a, a huge achievement in in itself. But one of the things that really struck me um, and uh, I know lots of people commented on it at the time was sort of the role of the media uh, during the campaign. And the way I would put it is that I think not all, but, you know, a number of media outlets sort of portrayed you in a way that I did not recognise. Um, uh, uh, you know, I did not recognise that the, the penny they were putting forward. Um, and in particular, they were really trying to make you out as this incredibly woke person, you know, the woke candidate, and that included uh, trans in particular. Um, what What's your reflection on that? Looking back, I know it's you know it's it's not that long ago, but but what um, you might have had a couple of weeks to, <laughs> to reflect on it. So I think you, you know when you're when you're in the eye of the storm, you know there's. Uh, you you have to recognize that 
people will be saying things and and in some cases writing things that um, are driven by a particular agenda. And so, uh, I mean, there's been lots of commentary about um, the the campaign that was uh, launched against me and um, that it was not, uh, you know, the, a lot of things were put out there that were not accurate or, um, or reasonable. Um, you know, I'll just give you an example. Lots of people commenting on my book who also freely admitted in the same article they hadn't read it. Um, so, you know, you just that's that you have to expect that it's not it's not necessarily right. But um, that is uh, that is part of what you um, you have to expect from from this business, I'm afraid. But uh, so, look, I I make no apology for standing up and and looking out for minority groups and uh you know that is quite difficult to do sometimes if also other people are trying to misrepresent your views uh as undoubtedly happened during this uh campaign um but i think that if you're in positions of authority and responsibility that you need to do that and you do need to care about uh, the the impact uh, that you're having on uh, on people and and how groups of people are perceived. What I would say though, and I said this during the ca- the campaign, and I think it certainly seems to have resonated with the public, is that out of all the candidates, I'm the only one that's won uh, a Labour seat, uh, a working class Labour seat, and uh, it's now um, you know has a good Conservative majority because I'm not a I'm not a nonsense. Uh, character i i live in the real world it's i'm i'm from the place that i represent and you know my constituents are not a bunch of snowflakes or or you know woke if you want to use that uh if you want to use that term they're down to earth very practical people who care about each other and love their country and they they've chosen me to represent them and uh i think that had cut through with the public and certainly certainly the conservative party membership um but uh but you know clearly there's some parts of the media that uh had another agenda mm, yeah and what would your key message be to your colleagues um you know the conservative parliamentary party at this stage so we we are approaching the end of this contest as we're <laughs> recording this and we have to come together at the end of it. It's been quite a brutal contest and, and understandably the stakes are high, but we have got to ensure that we're delivering for the people of this country. There are people, households, businesses who are really worried, uh, terrified and not knowing how they're going to get through the next few months, let alone uh, the, the next year. So uh, I know that uh, people have been preparing well to uh, ensure that whoever is uh, elected can hit the ground running and uh, and ensure that uh, they're delivering on that. But we've got to really understand and demonstrate that we understand uh, and help people through this very, very difficult time, but also getting access to public services that they need. We still have the huge catch-up job on education to do. We've still got backlogs in the NHS that need to be uh, worked through and focused on. We need to do that and that it's going to take a huge effort, um, but we have to deliver. We have to deliver for people and we can only do that if we're united. My final, final question, uh, which I ask every guest, um, and it's a, it's a particularly a popular question with listeners, is what is the best advice you've ever received or, or you know, what advice would you like to pass on? Uh, to, to <laughs> listeners <laughs> I would say um I would well I, I think it's incredibly important to think about how you live your life and what's important to you um as I said at the the start of this uh this podcast I think being focused on that and thinking about other people's problems uh and not your own and having the confidence in yourself that you can make a difference in the world. Those those are the things that I think all my experiences have taught me uh, that you you can make a difference. And if you care about something and you want to do it and you want to make a difference, chances are you're going to be good at it. 
uh, I do think that. Um, and uh, so for people that want to run for office uh, or maybe want to stand for some kind of other public office, be a school governor or be a counselor, go for it and uh, and believe in yourself. Because if you have the right motivations, uh, you'll do well. That would be my advice. Penny Mordant, thank you so much for sharing uh you know your your insights and and being a guest on what were you thinking thank you ever so much laura thank you so much for listening if you enjoyed the episode please do spread the word and do get in touch or share your thoughts via twitter i'm at laura round thank you 